to the second half of our uh, interview show here today, and this is a special show. We're, we're looking at a two-hour. We had an intermission. First time we've ever done that. First time we've ever done a two-hour show, and uh, Cliff and Pete, and, and Pete in particular, have spent a lot of time setting this up. So we set the set the background, and we're moving through the 80s now, and we've moved on through uh, the beginning of the Standard period and the early years of the Standard. So I want to set it up now to go to the next topic along the line, and then we'll get more closer to the uh, current and the future. Let's go to the Dryes Symposium and the birth of Willie, the WLI. It changed the path of the industry. Yeah. So what happened is um, in the, in the uh, early 90s and around the time with the, when the standards were starting to be developed, you know, Claude came up with this idea for the Dry East Symposium, and he wanted to have an industry event that Dry East hosted, but it wasn't about Dry East. It was about, uh, he invited everyone in the industry, and it was all about water damage. Back in those days, he was represented the, uh, the vendors of ASCR on the board. He had that seat, and Rizal was there. And he was always talking in those days that the association needed to do more stuff in the water damage area. And everybody always kind of thought Claude was saying that just because he was the owner of Dry East, but it really wasn't true. That's what the members wanted. And you, you had the old gardens place that was still kind of fire, smoke, construction kind of, uh, you know, that type of a deal. So what happened is he decided to just do this thing on his own, to have this event. He invited everyone in the industry anyway. In the middle of August in uh, Burlington, Washington, you know, which, you know, several miles from major airports, yeah. uh, 300 people show up. And what that showed us back then was that if you give good content, timely topics with great speakers, people will go anywhere at any time. That's an important lesson that the industry needs to listen to, the associations, anyone who puts programs on. Those are the top things that people want. They, you know, time and date and location, they care about. But what they care about more is quality of the topics and the quality of speakers, period. And Claude put great program together back in those days. Well, during all that same time, okay, so here's what happened in, in, in the Dry's one. I was involved in the program. I, hadn't, I wasn't working for Dry's anymore now. I had, I had left and, uh, and, you know, on my own. Uh, and that's a little bit back into the industry for a while, and then later I, you know, I started doing some con, you know, consulting and training on my own. But I had a relationship with Dryas for several years, and of course with Cliff and Unsmoke uh, and training, and through John Don and the suppliers that they represented. So what happened during that time was is um, there was a question on, on the evaluation that I actually told them to put on there, and I said if there was an organization in the industry that existed solely to serve specialist in water damage and drying, would you be willing to join? But what happened is there was several ASCR people there, including Cliff and others, and they thought that Dryes wanted to start an association. They never did. It was never the intent. Dryes wanted the association to have to, to recognize to that. To do more restoration. To do, to, well, not more restoration. Water and drying. Water. Because it's the beginning of the early days of the mold. mold right so what happened is that led to a special steering committee that got put together. Uh, uh, Cliff was on it, Reed Dow, Mark Bradley. Um, and Bill Warren. Yeah, Bill Warren. And what happened is they put a plan together that they were going to bring to the ASCR to say that they wanted to start a division. It was called the Water Loss Institute. We called it Willie, W-L-I Willie. It was an abbreviation. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually asked me to be on that committee. And I, again, turned it down at the time like I did with the standards because I had, was back in the Bay Area working with my buddy Butch, and I said, why don't you put Butch in there? I said, he's, a, you know, he's a, an operator, an entrepreneur. He's a pioneer in the water area. So Butch was on there for that first year. And um, so they went, they went to, the, to, the, uh, to the ASCR, 
they pitched it to the board, and the divisional status was granted to Water Loss Institute. And I remember Joe Jones, past, past president, he said, uh, he announced it in 1995 in San Francisco, and he said, the ladies and gentlemen of XCR, somebody asked him, says, the association has a new kid in town, and his name is Wee! You know what I'm saying? his Oklahoma twang. And uh, that was the introduction of WLI. Well, why is this important, and what does this all mean? Well, throughout the 90s, the, the, the WLI started their, their, their annual conferences. And um, the symposium, they had theirs uh, every other year, 94, 96, 98, that was the deal. So there was a lot of overlap between what the symposium was doing and what the WLI was doing. Well, based on my relationship with both ASCR, WLI, and also DRIES, we were able to informally collaborate so the programs were complementary and not competitive. Mm -hmm. We had some of the same speakers. We modified the topics because we knew that everyone was going to know everything. The, the, the symposium was always done in August. The WLI conference was always done in October. You know, the second week of October was the deal. And so that's important that you get both the nonprofit sector and the commercial sector to work together for the greater good of the common constituents. Okay. And um, that, that, that worked great uh, throughout, throughout that time. But why, why did I say that it changed the industry, the path of the industry? Well, here's why. During that time, what the WLI realized is that they, the industry, we couldn't learn from each other anymore. We had to reach out and learn from others. So as we started to reach out and we started to look, they had a thing in there called the Ambassador Program, and they, I was the educational director of the WLI for many years. Cliff was its first president, and they allowed me to be the goodwill ambassador for the Institute with sanctioning from the association. And what I did is I would go around, and actually on my own, my own expense, there was no budget. I went around, and I went to other industries, and I started to, to search, and I left them. I started to build bridges to ASCR, and so that, those were AIHA, the ASHRAE people, um, the legal communities, the medical profession, you know, the occupational physicians, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. And this is how we met Steebrook, we met Matt Pierce, we met Mike McGinnis, you know, the list goes on and on and on, Elliot Horner, I mean, I, Phil Morey, I, I could just keep going. And what happened is those people started kind of looking at our association. And back in those days, the IICRC, we shared this with everything. We brought these people into the S-500, the second S-500, and the industry started working together. What happened is we got two experts outside the industry who were able to help us, and they helped us grow. And I think this is important. Help make it better. Uh, yeah. All right, let's, let's move to the next one. I've got a topic, the legal symposium. And it's something, small hotel rooms and dinner in Chinatown <laughs> with a Sicilian mom. I bet I know who the Sicilian mom is. Yeah, well, the Sicilian mom is, is my mother, Vita Consigli, and Vita. You know, those of you who listen to The Godfather, the, 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 the godfather of the family was Vito, Vito. And Vita, V-I-T-A, is the feminine of Vita. So my mother was Vita Consigli, and uh, family is from the Gulf of the Castellamari. It's a fishing village uh, in the north coast of Sicily, at the other end of the island from Palermo, which is the capital of Sicily and the most famous city. But what happened is, you know, uh, my mom uh, knew a lot of my friends and people in the industry, and one of the things that uh, that happened is uh, during those Willie years, Cliff and, and myself went out and we did we did a bunch of pioneering stuff on behalf of the association, and, you know, we did it on our own dime. We never asked for money. We were volunteers and service the association. And what happened during those times, there was this really high-end legal symposium that was in downtown Wall Street at some big, huge legal firm and had an unbelievable agenda. And uh, it was sponsored by the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center, which was Merck. And this is where Chen Yang, 
Phil Morey, Mike McGinnis, uh, John Tiffany, and Howard Bader. Um, you know, the list goes on of all these experts that put on these programs through Merch. He had Region 3. Then Richard Shaughnessy, had, when he was with Tulsa, he had three other regions. He had Henry's uh, Slacks Region, Region 4 in the Southeast. He had the, uh, he had Barbara Spark, uh, she's still running PSU's Region 1 in California. And then he had whatever his region, I think it was 6 in Texas, Oklahoma, all that. And they were the primary people that were putting on these programs and indoor air quality beginning of the mold, you know, the mold era. So was EPA sponsoring these? Or yes, yes. There was EPA money that basically went to those programs. Uh, okay. And the, audi the, audience was, the audience was basically a typical government audience that could be government employees, industrial hygienists, the property owners, managers, BOMA, the restoration, remediation okay. guys, indoor air quality guys, industrial hygienists. That was the audience, right? So we started showing up, some of these restoration guys who were more you know, pioneering in the early days. And... So what happened was, is during that time we went to this legal symposium, this is when we first met and listened to Eckerd Johanning. And Eckerd Johanning had just come off the, the primetime uh, interview with Melinda Ballard, and he was the occupational physician, you know, with the whole Melinda Ballard case, which basically changed the industry. And from there, we developed a relationship with him. Uh, uh, he uh, spoke in some of our programs, but Maury, I mean, the list just goes on of all these guys who came to our programs and help participate in some way in the standards and the committees. And I think it's important that the industry and the people who weren't around in those days know and understand where we came from, who we are, why we're here today. It didn't just happen by accident. And there, and there's, 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 there should be a certain amount of reverence and respect that's paid for that, for those days. Not to dwell on it, but to learn from those lessons, understand it, and then decide, so how do we make it better today? How do we move to the future? How do we get back to some of the stuff that we did, build the industry, that somehow we've gotten off track? All right. I like it. Okay. What about, you, you kind of hit the mark in early yeah. Willie days. So let's move to the, the WLI 1 and 2, Oakland and Pittsburgh. What, what's Pete, where's the Western Pin <laughs> preserved for the CMPs? What's that mean? Yeah. So look, this is what happened. So during all these days with Merck and we met a lot of these guys, we decided to put together the, 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 the early, it was part of the plan for the WLI when the association approved it, the Waterloo Center. We had to do conference, and we also had to do a certification program. That comes in a few minutes a little later. So what happened is the very first program, there was some issues in the association with a bunch of stuff going on. And back in those days, the councils or the committees, we called them advisory committees, not councils. They had budgets. They had different authorities. They were institutes, I call it. The later was institutes. Well, it was an institute, but the committee was an advisory committee that served the institute. Yes, correct. Okay. That's right. So what happened is... We, gen we put these conferences on that generated as much money as the annual conference. I mean, it, it was powerful. And, um, and so what happened is the, we had the first one was in the Oakland, Berkeley Hills. We essentially basically we took a five-star hotel where they used to have some of the local insurance meetings. We contracted with the hotel. We filled the hotel up. We took the hotel over, and we had an unbelievable event that just kicked off. There were 300 people that came, which you had never seen before. It's just kind of a regional kind of a deal. You know, it was national, but just, you know, outside of the annual convention. And um, and so uh, that's when we first met Mac Pierce, and uh, he's quite a character. But what, but, but what happened is, after that, when we went to, to year two, we wound up being in Pittsburgh. And, and um, we picked the Westin in downtown, which is a grand old hotel. It's got Starbucks in there, the whole nine yards, and there's a Kinko's real close. And what happened is, we had some turbulence that was going on through changes in management at RAA and or ASCR was and, and within the WLI. So since it was in Pittsburgh locally and I had a couple trips out there with Cliff, remember I was living in California but I traveled a lot. Okay. What happened was is we decided to due to the negotiating 
with the hotel, and then the staff signed off on the contract, and we had the deal. But And I basically became the primary contact. The CMP is a certified meeting planner who basically oh, organized all this okay. stuff, right? So what happened is I actually, being Cliff, uh, kind of organized the entire event. And what happened is, why is that important? Well, back in those days, really in any days, why did volunteers get so committed and get so passionate? Because their name's associated with it. Who, who wants to have something be a flock? Right? So we, we wanted to have these hell. And we had an unbelievable committee of 10 or 12 guys. They pitched in, volunteered, and the committee basically delivered the show. I'm not going to get into all the politics of the association in time, but let's just say this. What happens when you have a show and you have to meet at a hotel, they have a little pin that they give to the, to, to, to the VIP, whoever is heading up the meeting planner, to work with the hotel. I had to sit in a room with 15 people at the Western staff that would have been by the person who handed the show to organize and put this event off, and it was unbelievable. The event was great. Um, the handout, we started the handouts before we went into the digital age. At one particular point, I actually had an AS, I had a Kinko's credit card from ASCR in my name, and what Cliff and myself, we, what we wanted to give the members back then for was digital. We wanted to give them a workbook, meaningful handouts, it was unbelievable. I mean, we huh. spent some money at Kinko's, but we did it We did it on behalf of the members. No, but it was mandatory because when someone sent some, uh, one of their employees cross-country to right. attend this, like, what are they bringing back? And, yeah. and, and we yeah. wanted it to be noteworthy, impressive, yeah. and valuable. So let me wrap up with that. There's this guy there named Dr. Miner, and Dr. Miner is out of Texas, and he's mm. the guy he, He's the guy that, un, uh, that microband hired. Um, then there's a lot of guys like him who would do testing of products to get EPA registration. So we wanted him, because these were when some of those fifth issues were on the industry. We wanted him to talk to the members and talk to the industry about what the process is, what does EPA registration mean, what's the difference, all that kind of stuff. So he kind of gave us his talk, and he, he happened to be an entertaining guy. At one particular point, he ended by saying this. He goes, look, he says, you guys don't need to make it too complicated. He says, it's this simple. He says, the first thing that you need to do is you need to clean it. The second thing you need to do is you need to dry it. The third thing that you need to do is you need to apply, apply the registered disinfectant, and the fourth thing you need to do is send them a bill. So, <laughs> so, and it was in that order, because he said all disinfectants were based on a clean surface, okay? Yep. So yep. he said clean it first. He said then you actually dry it before you apply the product to get maximum efficacy, all right? And then he said the job's done. If you did your job right, send them a bill. And so that was it. So it was clean it, dry it. Sanitize it, set it a bill. It was like the battle cry. And it went on for quite a while. And, and to this day, is it any different? Should it be? Joe, you're and I, you're, I mean, is it different? No. Uh, you know, it's, it's that Although there is the battle on whether to sanitize. Well, it, that's true. But, but the point is, we, we kind of get away from this. We make it too complicated sometimes. So I guess that's the point. I agree. I agree. All right. Let's go to, uh, we're starting to get, I think, a little closer to yeah. the current time here. Consigli and the Purdue Connection. That's an interesting topic. Uh, we were at the, we did a couple shows actually now from Purdue at the uh, at the conference, or at least one. And we've done uh, one call in, I believe. We, we did with Randy Rapp. Randy Rapp, yeah. Yeah. So, so what happens? There's a guy named Bob Bonwell who's really uh, should uh, have uh, um, the, the industry owes so much to him. And so what happened is uh, Bob Bonwell. Uh, as a, uh, a company advantage marketing, and it's, it's, uh, his, his kids are in the business now, and uh, based out of Indianapolis, I think he has an office in Cincinnati. Okay. And he's okay. a you know, traditional supplier. He's probably part of the, the Interlink Bridgepoint Network. Anyway, um, 
so he had a whole focus group of guys, guys like Dan Posky. He's the guy who started um, uh, the IMAX right. group. He had a guy named, well, he had Kurt Bolden, who everybody knows in Hyderabad. He had Chuck DeWald, everybody knows Chuck in his. And a number of other guys like this, DKI guys, RIA members, all these guys. Joey Pickett, and even though he was an ISRC instructor, he also was a, um, he was a, uh, a, a cleaner in the area. Uh, Jim Rochelle, who started Evans in the garment. Well, these guys were in their focus group back in those days, in the 90s, and they were all complaining one time when they got together that they couldn't find employees. And so Bob said, he said, well, you know, my cousin is a dean at, at Purdue, over the building construction, he says, why don't I go up and talk to him and find out what he can solve a problem? Well, that basically led to a trip up there. At one point in the 90s, uh, me and Joey Pickett, I was part of that group. We went up. This is when Drew Brees was the quarterback there many, many years ago. And um, we started talking to building construction, talking to the department. And after a couple of visits, they said, you know what? We can help you. I said, but it takes money. And they walked us around the campus, and they showed all the concentrations on the building instruction, how industry helped fund these buildings and hire professors. So Bob went out, took him a while, and he had to, he had to raise a million and a half dollars. They have matching fund, funders there, so it's a $3 million fund. And he, so what he decided, he wanted to get uh, ten. 10 entities entities that would be willing to commit 150000 which is 15000 a year for 10 Great. years. And so uh, Unsmoke jumped on board. And um, Dryer jumped on board. Kempspec jumped on board. All three of them now are all under the Legends brand. You know, mm-hmm. um, yep. DKI did. Service Master, Evans, IMAC. Um, I think Bridgepoint too. You know, if I left someone out, I apologize. But they basically he had nine companies, and he had a certain window of time. And if he lost that window, what would happen is the money would go. The money would go away, and the program would fall. Matching money. The matching. Away. Right. So what he did is, I did. It caught its sold Dryer's now. He went to Claude personally. And he, he asked Claude if Claude would give the money. I think Bob might have even donated. No, no. Oh, yes, Bob was Advantage Marketing donated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. How can I forget, right. can I forget that? Yeah. Right. And I, he did come to ASCR and IACRC, but we told him the industry, the nonprofits can't do that. Our members do. And basically all those people are members yeah, and, right. you know, and trainers for ISRC. Yeah. Right. So what happened was he went to Claude, and he was, he was desperate. And Claude didn't really know anything about Purdue and anybody cared about Bob. Bob was a major supplier for him. Sold a lot of his products, very loyal as a friend. He was an honest broker. He was a pioneer. He, he was the first guy with the cube trucks, which right. we today and all that. And Ray Drove bought the first cube truck. Bought the first cube truck. And what happened was he gave him the money. And that's why it launched. He personally donated 150000 So what happened was a few years later, I asked Claude, why did he do it? And uh, he didn't care anything about Purdue. He didn't even know about it. He said... Because Bob helped me, and I helped him. That was it. Yeah. People don't realize these things that happened, why we are where we are today, because it's the commitment of people to the industry about giving back. It's a two-way street. And because of that, there's a program, and the industry is down the road to, to credibility and, and to credentials one day. Yep. Because, because all those companies supported it, and when push came to shove, one man personally supported it because the way he felt for another man. We should never forget that. Well, you know, the amazing thing is all they, it, I think what, what's important is it was critical that Claude went in because everyone else had already given, you know, Purdue had the money. They had the money. They had, I mean, if they had the money the and pledge. they had the pledge, you know, we, we had this, I mean, Purdue's legal department wrote the documents that 
Well, yeah, trust me, we were committed. Without that last, we would have lost. Months. We would have lost all the money, and we were still committed. Yeah. Well, and and what happened is, you know, if you look at that now, in in 2007, at one of the one of the uh, fall conferences of RAA, we had uh, we had Robert Cox, who was the grant, uh, was the, the, the head. Of the, he was the, the Dean Cox. He was the head at the time of uh, in that BCM area. Um, he came and. Uh, we had a program. We put them on a program that talked about the restoration project management of the future. They hadn't hired Randy yet. Then they hired Randy. We introduced the industry in Baltimore to RAA conference, and he introduced Randy. And then, you know, it's been really great relationships since. Randy now is on the ISCRC board. Yep. Um, you know, I go out to do regularly, do guest lectures there, as do some of the other people that help out. We've had uh, Dale Saylor, who was the, was the uh, CEO of DKI, did a lecture. Um, uh, uh, Sheldon Yeldon from Belfort did a, a guest lecture to all the students and the faculty. It was very well received. The undercover boss, they loved that. <laughs> um, uh, recently, uh, Paul Gross is, and uh, Wayne Sarah, Wayne Sarah is the, the new CEO of Code Blue, they went and gave the insurance TPA perspective you know, to the audience. I always kind of said, I said, if we can't get those guys to come out of disaster programs to actually work for restoration contractors, the next best thing would be insurance adjusters. And some of them do go to Liberty Mutual and go to the company. So this is important. And the culmination last year is Purdue, Purdue had a global conference and reached out to me in industry. The ISRC supported it. Um, Ed Jones from Code Blue wrote a paper that was scientifically peer-reviewed on the flood research work that they do in their house. And I got Cliff and Rusty to work with the two, with the demolition industry and two, two well-known respected demo guys and uh, a lady from the volunteer sector uh, industry. Uh, you know, they travel around the world cleaning up after these tsunamis. Yep. We wrote a 20-page document. It's published on the Purdue ePubs. It's globally downloaded. And we just talked about best practices to, to the academic audience, to, the, to the, uh, the seven countries represented there, to government. There's people there who represent the World Health Organization, the CDC, the one guy talked about the Haiti reform, yeah. one lady talked about the, the, earth, the, 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 the Christchurch earthquakes in New Zealand. And so the members stepped up, and we basically were able, through these connections, we were influencing the global impact of this. And people don't realize that. In some ways, you know what I'm saying, it could even have more potential impact than maybe these standards do because you have the leaders in the industry who are essentially saying this is what happens in real life in the field. And it was simple and readable. And uh, anyway, and, I, and those guys put a lot of work at their own time, their own expense. They came, and, and I really. I think before that. you go on, I think one thing, Pete, is is we're graduating people out of those programs now. Well, that's true. They they have they have a, uh, a work study group of Purdue students that have been coming to REA for quite a few years. People are graduating. Uh, they're getting internships in the industry, working in summer jobs to get to help get their degrees. Um, the Boldens and some of the other schools are, are, are subsidizing them, you know, for uh, incidental fees to cover hard costs. They're taking ISRC courses, and they're being hired in the industry, and, that, and that's starting to grow, and that's important, and that's part of a credentialing and part of an industry having credibility, in my, in my view. Well, you, you mentioned the IICRC a few times. You, you two served together um, on the IICRC board in the mid to late 90s. Can we talk yeah. about that? Just well, you know, I, I served from 1994. To 1999, and there, there were four individual shareholders of the ISRC when Ed York turned all that over several years ago. And um, and that was uh, the two Paulson brothers, uh, Rodney and Daryl, uh, Lee Pemberton, right here in Pittsburgh, and it was Tom Hill, who just recently retired as uh, their, their, uh, their director for many years, a management, you know, management firm. And um, at the time when Tom came in to, he gave his chairs back once he was going to become the director. 
from Ken Lee Mead, who was the original director, because it was a conflict. But he had many years, he had Cy Gantz to speak from uh, DuPont, who was great, Cy, really tremendous input. And, um, and so um, uh, Rodney came to me and Daryl, actually, and they said, Pete, how would you like to um, uh, sit in Rodney's seat, you know, for a few years and uh, get some input? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it. What do you want me to do? Well, he said, well, we just want to repeat. He said, what do you want back? He said, well, we don't really want anything. You know, we're not going to tell you that. We'll do whatever you want. He said, but you know, once you walk here in Southern California, if you want to stop by and, you know, talk to us and do a little training. He said, well, I'd do that anyway. You're my friend. You're like dinner. Anyway, that's what it started. I had that seat for four years. Cliff was on there representing Tri-State for many years. Claudia was there representing ASCR. And, um, you know, those were the early years of development. And, and through the time that I served there, actually, in the early 90s, uh, when I was working for Dryers, I became the WRT PAC. Claude was the PAC. And then I, I took it over. Okay. And so I was, I was an ISR as the instructor, you know, I did all that. And so what happened was, is I, I actually, um, uh, there's a couple of major things that I did while I was involved with the ISCS at that level, being on the board. The first thing is I had, I had the opportunity at the time to be involved with a group of people that developed the conflict of interest policy, you know, that still stands today. Working with Mark Hansen, their prior uh, attorney who passed, it was a wonderful man. He helped a lot with a lot of policies, a lot of standards he was involved. He was terrific and a good risk management mind. And um, there also was an instructor's, original instructor's committee, me, Mike Wesley, Pemberton, Doug Bowles. Um, we worked with how to establish theses for instructors. And I always felt, I, I said, and I, I always agreed, we said, look, as instructors, we need to have, to have a higher CC requirement than the students and the certificates. I said, you have to have a higher passing score to teach. So I said, we thought it should be in three areas. And this has led to the, to the instructors of the dry, that the, not dry, the ISRC has. We said, look, there's three things. They need to have technical expertise in the area they're teaching. They need to have some level of hands-on experience, right? It's not just academic. And then they need to have professional skills of just being good trainers and how to present. And that ultimately became, we used to call them, not CCs, we call it PDUs, professional development units. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but I was very happy to work with that in that, that role, and um, I thought those were important things. And then, of course, you know, the development of the standards process and eventually to the, you know, to the ANSI process. Cliff and myself were always advocates for that. So that's how I got to the ANSI process. And, yeah. uh, Cliff, did you want to add anything in that, at that point? Those were some pretty turbulent uh, times. And I think there was a reason why the conflict of interest policy uh, needed to be pushed there and, and pushed hard because there were blatant uh, major conflicts of interest. Major conflicts. All right. And I think that that document uh, went far in correcting them. All right. Let's move to the, uh, the Z-Man. You were in the room, actually. Um, apparently when the ASCR left the IICRC. What, what happened? I think, first of all, I think, um, as you know, Joe, the uh, the IACRC uh, is their shareholders, and there are different regional associations that are shareholders. And I think that there are regional associations, and then there are regional associations that think that they're international associations. And in all honesty, uh, I think that there were some people that were uncomfortable that RIA joined. And I'll be very honest with you, I was. Uh, RIA had joined many years before. I was very disappointed that RIA or that uh, RIA had, had joined. It was ASDR at that time. I felt that uh, really IICRC had proven themselves to uh, really uh, you know, be the enemy of, uh, of ASCR in, in, in many, many ways. 
And they just didn't have an open process. It was kind of their way or the highway, and I think it was very inclusive. And uh, you know, uh, so what? No, ex- you meant exclusive or inclusive? You said inclusive. No, ex. You know that they were not inclusive. Right. You no. said you meant exclusive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they were not inclusive. ICRC was always kind of trying to. I, I was there as a representative, and I was there to represent Tri-State. And, and what happened was they had this bigger picture. So when you went to the IICRC, you were supposed to take off your Tri-State hat and then put on the IICRC hat and, and vote for things that supported the IICRC. You, you had this, like, built-in conflict of interest. Is this best for my, for my regional or is this best for the association? And you're always supposed to vote for what was best for the association. So the, the organization. Not the, or, the, the organization. Yeah. Right. So, so what they did is they changed this loyalty pledge. And in my opinion, the, the change in the loyalty pledge was directly uh, pointed towards uh, RIA. Okay. ASCR at that time, or RIA today. And what happened was the, pre- the president, of, I was past president, uh, immediate past president of, uh, of RIA, and I got along really well with Lee Zimmerman, who was president of uh, IICRC, because we were both from from Western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bill Warren, uh, who was my vice president, and then was president of RIA. He's, uh, he's a good guy, he's a real strong religious person, and he could not. A person of very high principles, he refused to sign a document and then do something different. And he said, I'm not going to sign this document. And at that point, uh, RIA was represented by Larry Jacobson, who uh, was an attorney. And RIA had... Or, uh, we, were, we were managed by Larry. Yeah, Larry was the executive director. Correct. He was the, the executive director. He was an attorney, and Mark Hansen was an attorney. And they were trying to come up with some sort of uh, language. And it, it boiled down to IICRC be unwilling to change the language, and uh, ASCR, now RIA, being unwilling to live with the language, so they just sold their shares back. You know, it's a, it's a tough situation. I'm on there now. Yeah, and, I know. You know, you, you've got that inherent conflict between your regional and... But then, it, but then Joe, it was much, much worse. They, they had all these regulations that uh, now... now IICRC has come so far in terms of collaboration. You know, they're trying to collaborate with RIA. They're trying to collaborate with IQA. They're trying to. At that point, there was no collaboration. Uh, everyone, they looked at everyone as the enemy, and everyone was the competitor. And whatever anyone else was doing, they also wanted to do. And they really, uh, it was a tough time. All right. Well, let's let's move to the next topic here. Um, summer camp. Oh, what a great topic. Right around the corner. Summer camp, years one through three. The executive chef was born. We've got him here, Pete. Yeah. Cool. What happened was we met Joe Seabrook and Matt Pierce, a lot of these guys, um, during those Willie Ambassador years, me and Cliff out there, the legal symposium, all the stuff we talked about. And um, and Joe was just fantastic, uh, you know, and and back then, uh, WLI hosted the two building science seminars with Joe. Very educational for our members. So what happened was is up with this idea for summer camp, and the original idea was is that he was going to um, uh, he wanted to put training on by what he calls the old guys who know stuff, you know, who his leaders and mentors in the building science community to train his own guys and his very close friends. 
So actually, the very, very first summer camp, which is not registered as part of summer camp, and I wasn't really part of it, he, did, he had one of these kind of events. And what he realized is there was only 10, 15 people there. They threw some money in the pot. They had some talks. They bought some pizzas. They drank some beer. You know, it was one of those deals for a few days. He realized he wanted it to be more significant. So what he did is he started reaching out to people that he knew and all the different components of the building science community, the industrial hygienists, the home builders, the engineers, the architects, all this kind of stuff, and all the relations they had, and, and mean clip were the restoration guys. So he invited two people from each of these industries. It was supposed to be like 40 people that had come to the first recorded summer camp, I think, in 1996. And um, so what happened was they wound up being about 60 that came. And that very first one, um, I actually did a cameo. I, I, in, in year one, I did a cameo on a case study of a mold remediation project that I did underneath the crawl space. doesn't seem like that's much now, but back then in the free mold, that was a big deal. And insurance covered it all back then. It was very interesting. And what happened is, and that was that, and there's some stuff we could talk about. But anyway, that was the first one. It was intense detail. In year two when we come back, um, what happens is uh, the thing, it was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the very early one. It actually went to Thursday. But on the Sunday before, sometimes on a Saturday night, people start coming in to Joe's house. They're going over to Barbecue house. So Joe's out there. He's barbecuing, he's got a beer, he's talking with a bunch of his friends and everything, and I'm watching the grills flaring up, the bratwurst is rolling <laughs> off, you know. So I, I get there, it's about noon, and I'm looking at in his back porch, I'm looking at him, and he's, hey, how you doing, Joe? And I'm just standing there kind of shaking my head at him. He goes, what's going on? I said, Joe, you're kind of sucking at this. What do you, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you can't be drinking, cooking, and talking at the same time. You know, they're like separate deals. Now, these guys didn't kind of know that I was, you know, I'm a Italian kid raised in New York, cooking with my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, my cousins. So he said, so what? You could do better? I said, better. I said, I could kick your ass standing on my head with one hand tied behind my back. And I, those might have been my actual words. <laughs> so now everyone's kind of really quiet. So Joe kind of looks at me. Now he starts walking towards me with this gleam in his eye. He reaches in his pocket. He gives me his credit card. He says, you're in charge. I said, what does that mean? He says, go ahead. You're talking? This is impressive. So, well, do I have a budget? He says, no. He says, do whatever you want. I said, no budget? Uh, it's my kind of party, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and years later, you know, he kind of got me back. He said, you know, he was the only guy I know who has no budget and he can exceed it. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to be laughing so hard there, Mr. Z. So anyway, I go out, and about four hours later, I put this feet on, and, and, it, and it was a big deal. And they didn't know I was a cook. So they're going, Pete, you whipped this together so quick. What's the deal? I said, look, it's not because I'm a cook. I said, I'm a restoration project manager. The guy's had an emergency. This is what we do. I'm a boy. So he said, you know, if you actually had some time, what you did, if you have some time, I said, I'll give you a Sicilian feast. I said, that's like Thanksgiving on steroids is what I told him. They go, great. So Tuesday night, I did my first Sicilian night. That was the beginning of Sicilian night. I made all my family recipes and hit. And after that, for year three, he said, hey, Pete, if we want to take over summer camp, that part, the social activity, which I did, and the rest is history. But year three, I actually did another um, cameo. This was actually a very important cameo. Uh, I had worked with the, one of our members, and I've been doing some consulting, uh, Richard and Dan Chavez, the Chavez brothers out, out of uh, Topeka and Lawrence, Kansas. And they had had a major flood in a high school. It was a vandalism. It was on the local news. And they called me, and I consulted with them on doing the drying of the building. And so they, they, they dried these hardwood floors out, and no one said it could be done. And for about forty-five or 50000 they saved the county over 200000 maybe 250. And what happened is in the second dry symposium, I helped Dan put a present case study, and he presented it to the dry symposium. Years after that, we actually 
did that case study and some of the training classes at Dry that we did, and we were able to share back with the industry how the technology works, vapor pressure differential, dry and dense materials, all that. Well, I gave that presentation to the summer camp audience, and I got to tell you, I was nervous as you could possibly be. Now, by this time, there's like 125 people there from the 50, and I give the presentation, and, I say, and what I told them, I said, this is what we had, this is what we did, this is what turned out. I didn't try to explain the science or do anything. I just said, these are the results, this is real. So they enjoyed it. One guy way in the back of the room says, well, you know, Pete, so the job is fairly recent, but yeah. He goes, so, you know, you got to sit in the edge of your seat for a while. I said, yeah, I said, we got to go through four seasons, you know, we'll make sure, anyway, anyway. It went through the warranty period, everything was great, it worked out fine, and that was it. So it's stuff like that. This is what association's about, people networking, sharing information. That was summer camp, and anyway, it's legendary. Now this year, it's going to be the 19th year, next year is our 20th anniversary. Uh, RIA, um, we're up to about 500 now, well, 400 plus, and with the crew and everything, and Monday night is about 500, and, and quite frankly, and then my mom was involved for many years with the Sicilian night, we had a real Sicilian mom in the kitchen, and after she passed, we named it the Vita Consigli Memorial Sicilian Night. And about 100 people stay, and I, some of my cousins come up, and we prepare our recipes, and it's a lot of fun. And um, so next year's a big year, 20th anniversary of summer camp, 70th anniversary of uh, REA. Yeah. You know, from the stand, it's uh, be a big year. For some things are resilient. Yeah, well, resilient. Yeah. All right, what about, what's the WLS? Well, the, the WLS is the Water Law Specialist Program. You know, RAA has the Certified Restorer, which Marty founded. We had several programs uh, through the divisional days. We had um, the, the uh, uh, Armin, Buzz Jr., Dohanian, and Ellen Amerkin developed the CRS Certified Rec Specialist. It was a special fabric specialist course that Stephen Steenback had developed for the Crop and Upholstery Keeners years ago. Uh, Davidge Warfield was well known in the air quality group. Uh, he did this as uh, certified mechanical hygienist. And then the WLS was a specialty designation in the water loss area, which, quite frankly, that was part of the original uh, WLI concept that when we said we were going to put conferences on the Goodwill Ambassador, things were in the WLS. So we, we put that together, Cliff, myself, uh, two other gentlemen, and um, we uh, developed that program in the late 1990s, 1999. We rolled it out in Kansas City. And uh, it's evolved, and it's out to this year. It's been redeveloped a couple times over the year, but it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a specialty. Uh, you know, it, it, it's as close to being a third-party accreditation without actually being one, because when we actually develop it, we develop it for, for the association to own it through consensus-based process, trying to follow the rules of third-party accreditation. I see. So, yeah. All right. What about your, what, what was your three-year walk? Uh, well, so as soon as the WLS was uh, done, and I felt I completed that work in the mid-90s. I started thinking about wanting to take some time off and take, and tr and take a trip around the world. I wasn't going to take two years off. It wound up being three because in the middle of my trip, 9-11 happened. And so what happened was is I, um, I wound up taking off from uh, October of, of 2000 until I came back to the industry in 2003. And I, and I traveled around the world. I was in the Dominican Republic. Uh, I had a separate trip to Europe. I, I did a lot of things, and I, it was just my own personal thing. I literally dropped out of the industry, didn't talk to anyone really for over a year and a half, almost two years, and and I almost didn't come back to the industry. I got so burned out in the politics that stepped up in the late 90s with the second S500 document. I really burned out. I, I did a couple things I'm, I'm not very proud of, and um, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And Came back for summer camp every year? Yeah, I always did. Joe always told me, he said, we'll hunt you down wherever in the world, so don't worry, I'll come back for summer camp every year. But I did, I, you know, there's some stuff that happened, and um, 
anyway, so what happened was is I uh, I basically um, during that time uh, almost was looking into becoming a professional chef, and I decided not to. And um, anyway, in 2002, I came back for they called me to come back to do something with one of the WLI conferences, and anyway, a year later I came back to the industry and. Um, Anyway, and here I am. But I almost said, you know, what I realized is I didn't want to be a professional chef. And, you know, I had an opportunity in 1978 with uh, some friends of mine who wanted to send me to culinary art school in in uh, France. If I made a 10-year commitment to them, they were going to open up a, a, a four-star restaurant in New York. And some people say that I would, if, if I would, I would never, I wouldn't have been known in the industry then. And a lot of people who know me said, Pete, if you would have put that level in then, you would have been Emerald Bobby Flay. I could have been one of those guys. That would have been my oh, yeah. But what happened is it never wound up being it. I became the restoration guy, and I feel that I get that part that I want. Joe gave that to me, to be the executive chef. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, it's, and, and you, you love it. It's obvious. All right. Where, where's, what's the birth of the restoration watch? Yeah. Come on. What's the restoration yeah, watch? So anyway, so during, during the, uh, my sabbatical, there became a point where around the time just before I came back, I kind of reconnected with Cliff. This was a year before he came back, and I found out that, that the ISCRC had started a process to develop the S520. And um, so the question I asked was, I said, well, are, are they following their, their, their rules? And everybody said, what rules? I said, well, one of the things that we did for the second S500 and before uh, I left, we developed, the ISCRC developed a document that was called um, the ISCRC standard for, for, for creating and maintaining standards. It was a seven-page document, one-page application, six-page that was based on anti-essentials. And Claude chaired the committee. I mean, the committee was Claude, Cliff, Dean, Barry Costa, Dan Bertazzani, um, um, uh, uh, Dane Gregory, and the larger committee was Bishop and, um, and Larry Cooper, I think Daryl Paulson. And so what happened was we developed a document before we did the second S500, and I think they used it for the S300 too, which is a posted document, to just, we weren't ANSI yet, but we wanted to follow ANSI rules, because the second S500, Cliff and myself had suggested that they needed somebody to be a better writer, so we actually recommended Glenn Feldman, and he, 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 the document looked better. If you ever look at the first and the second, the first one just kind of looked amateurish. The second one looked fancy style was much better than the second document. Yep. So during that time, everyone started saying like they didn't know what I was talking about and that it didn't exist. So I, I kind of got a little upset and I started making a couple of calls around and everyone said, we don't even know what you're talking about, Pete. I said, well, that's a bunch of BS. I said, quite frankly, that document, I was on the board. I presented that document on behalf of the consensus body at the time to the IIC Certification Council. It was approved by the board. I said, and it was IACRC policy. How could a bunch of guys develop it and not even recognize it exists anymore? Well, what Including I was, some of the people that developed it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, what, I, what I was told later was, oh, this is just aggravates me. So I'm going to go out on the edge here. If, some, if I ruffle a few feathers, so be it. What happened was is people told me that, well, maybe it was a mistake and it didn't get put in the policy after it was approved. I said, so how did that happen? They, they wanted to blame Kenway me because he wasn't around anymore. What BS that is. I said, look, Kenley was a wonderful man. He did a great job. Nah, I'm not buying it. And that was it. So Cliff and myself trademarked the name Restoration Watchdogs, and that was the beginning of the watchdogs. John, John Downey was the original watchdog. Well, Ed York was the original watchdog, and I did a lot of writing in the early years with Downey when he was the owner of Clean Factor before he sold it. Okay. And we just had a connection through Ed, 
Ed York and with Downey and me and Cliff, and we just wanted to do the right thing. And we raised an awareness for the industry. We did our own mailings. We created a logo, and we challenged the industry. And quite frankly, we raised, we, we ruffled a lot of feathers, and we created a stir. Ultimately, what that led to, the ISRC then had Mark Hansen, their attorney, develop a 38-page document that is their document on how to develop standards. Eventually, it became an ANSI standard provider, and that's yeah, yeah. That's how it happened. You know what I always like to say? I like to quote Mark Twain here. Any, anyone who's listening, anybody who's going to read the blog, and anyone who's going to have to bitch and complain, Mark Twain once said, get your facts straight first, sir, before you try to distort them. <laughs> and uh, any place, any time, Pete and I will be willing to put our credentials on the line, our voting record, and and our, prof- and our integrity and our professional reputation on the line. Absolutely. You tell us where, we'll, sh- we'll be there. All right. I love it. All right. The WLI, Goodwill Ambassador, and the Standards Consultant play a game of chicken. Yeah, so let me tell you about it. <laughs> so so, so this, is, this is why, I, so what happened is I'm on, I'm on my sabbatical. The Restoration Watch, uh, remember I told you I visited with Cliff. We did a mail and we created a bunch of stir. So at the time, the, consult- the, the Standards Consultant for the IACRC had taken a sabbatical, and uh, not a sabbatical. He, he took a trip with his wife. I think he, I don't remember where he went. He went to... Um, Hilton Point. No, 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 no. He, no, he went, he went, no, no. He went, he went to, like, Nepal, and I don't know whether he went to Everest, but he took off, and he was off the, off the radar for at least a month, not checking email, not checking voicemail, not doing anything. Well, apparently when he came back, what he told me later, we laughed about it, he said... Uh, he had so many emails and so many voices. Everything was fogged up, and it was all about, you know, what's Consigli and Plotnik doing and these guys with this restoration watchdog. So he calls the powers to be at ASCR, the president at the time, and he says, well, so where's Pete? And he says, we don't know. He's around the world somewhere. They said, well, you've got to track him down, and, and you've, got to, you've got to call the dogs off, right? So I said, what are you talking You know, what's going on? So what, anyway, what happened is I get a message from the president at the time, and they said, Pete, I said, look, we just wrote a letter and sent a letter out, and, and I'm off. We're doing it. He says, yeah, but he says, the implications of that is you created a big stir. I said, well, it was designed to be. You know, he wanted to do the right thing. So he goes, he says, look, can you call the standards consultant? He says, uh, he wants to talk to you. So I remember I was in Greece, and I'm up in the second city called Telekiniki. That's where Philip of Macedonia is from. And I'm, and I'm up there, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm, uh, um, I'm mean, during, during the, the, uh, the Greek Orthodox, uh, you know, deal, the whole country shuts down. Hey, okay, so anyway, so I call. I had to track them down. They're getting ready to, I think it was a dry symposium that was at the Mirage in Vegas. They had moved it that then there. Or, I don't know, it was a dry symposium somewhere. I'm pretty sure it was. It was a big deal. And I call, and I actually happened to get him while he was checking into the hotel, and he basically says, so what do you guys got planned for me next, you know? <laughs> and I said, well, look, anyway. So the bottom line, what happened was is um, he basically, he, I said, you ready to cry, uncle? He says, man, you guys got to take it easy. And it was kind of funny. And it was really jokingly in good nature with good intent. And um, after that, they, you know, they, they went down the road to develop the answer to do that. And we just, that was it. And, uh, but anyway. It was funny. We um, we reminisced about it years later at an ACJH uh, meeting, and we talked about it. And that um, yeah, was what it was. You know, it's just it's part of the process, I guess. Well, all right. What about the Z man becomes president? It's lonely at the top. I I think that um, you know every business really needs to go through a uh, SWOT analysis. You know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities. 
uh, and threats. And, uh, you know, when I was president of uh, RIA, I perceived the threat and felt that, um, you know, I needed to deal with it. And uh, I did the best I could to, uh, you know, to protect the association. And, you know, sometimes that comes uh, by ruffling some feathers and, uh, you know, doing what you have to do. It's not always easy. What's the lesson learned there? Sometimes you just have to do what you do and That's take right. your shots. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I think the lesson is leadership. Leadership make so so it's like you got to make hard decisions. You got to talk to the board. You got to get consensus. The board has to agree it's the right thing to do, and then the leader has to basically pull the plug or press the button or whatever it is. And, and, it, and it's there's always there's always cause and effect. Joe, the one thing is uh, when you're the leader. You have to be willing to fall on the sword and uh, you know, take yourself out. Or you know, it's not about politics; it's really about you know dealing with the threat. So, Joe, listen. I want to jump in here for a minute. Go ahead. Um, uh, we got a lot to talk about, and I guess this is a three-hour show. So, this is what I'm going to suggest, and this is what we we'll do because I'm paying attention to the clock. What I think I want to do is I want to cover a couple more topics, and then I want us to roll into the roundup. Okay, right. and I made a note on our punch list, and I think at some point let's let this percolate for a while, and we're gonna have we're gonna have a part three to the show, which really three. be a part two, and this can be done. We don't have to be sitting together, right? And we'll kind of continue down the list. All right. So I, I one of the things I think I'd, right. I'd like Cliff to comment on before we move back to a couple items of in the roll up is talk about the ASVR Foundation because that kind of happened under your watch or when you were on the executive committee. Talk about that. That means what the C3 means and all that. That's kind of important. Just kind of try to cover it quickly. Well, personally, I didn't know anything about it when uh, RIA chose Larry Jacobson as the uh, association director. Uh, you know, RIA was always uh, professionally, I'm sorry, self-managed, and they chose him as the executive director. Prior to that, I mean, he was an attorney. Uh, he had worked for Service Master. That was primarily why I think he ended up with the job, because he'd had experience in the industry. Um, what happened was his prior position, prior to coming to uh, ASCR, was he was um, involved with the building owners and managers association. And they have a very unique model at that group. There's the building owners and managers association, and they also have a complementary organization called the Building Owners and Managers Institute. So there is BOMA and BOMI. And what happens is there are certain limitations of things that a trade association can do, uh, which is primarily representing their members and so on and so forth. On the educational side, when it gets into certification, there are some limitations and there really need to be some walls set up between one and the other to go down the route of third-party accreditation. So I think that he had a, a really brilliant model, which was to have RIA have a C6, which dealt with um, association issues, and it's a I, you know, IRS uh, C6, which is your normal trade association, and then there's what is called a 501C3, and the difference between the two of them is one is tax-exempt and the other is not. 
So the C3 is tax exempt. It's the same type of uh, IRS um, category that universities such as Purdue and Penn State and uh, even, church, and, and, even and, churches and, right, get involved. And, and educational charitable for the greater good. Yes, yeah. Charitable for the for the greater good. And right now after nine eleven they are very, very yeah. difficult to get. Tough to get. And they've got them. All right, right. let's go to uh, Cliff. Roasts Marty first. <laughs> Marty MC's Z Man's So look, this is important. The reason I, I wanted Cliff to talk about the foundation. Shortly after that, in two thousand and four, we decided that we were going to roast have a roast from Marty King. And we're going to use it to raise money for the foundation, right? For the ASR okay. Foundation. So what happened is we had the post at the DuPont Country Club. We had this fellow, Bill Brown, who was a, a marketing consultant association at the time. He was connected. And so we, we, had, we had a conference in um, Philadelphia that year, and then uh, the, the, the Just, uh, uh, Just Contents Conference. And then what happened is we wound up having this, this, this uh, roast of Marty. So there was a whole slew of people looking to roast Marty, and Cliff was one of them. What happened is Cliff got up there and did a real roast. I mean, you know, and he went out on the edge. And some people who were kind of telling, well, Cliff, you know, you, you can't talk about that like Marty. I mean, he was yeah, he cracked some funny ones because everyone else they wasn't a roast because they had this reverence for Marty, right? <laughs> so, so what happened is he kind of roasted, but he actually did a real roast, and it wasn't disrespectful in any way. It was just it was it was a roast, right? Uh, well, what, what happened was <laughs> they told me to, to and this is like you know, Don Rickles and all these people yeah, exactly. on television, you know, that were doing it. And I, absolutely, I, I thought that that's what they, they told me that I was supposed to do it, and then they put us in alphabetical order, so I was last. So what happens when the first person gets up there and goes, "Okay," and you know, Marty's this, and, you know, and it's like it's like Marty, we are not worthy. <laughs> and so on and so forth. And finally, they get to me. And I mean, all the nice stuff had already been said. I had no other material. I had no choice. And as soon as I was done, the first person I saw was Jimmy Berry. I need those boats. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happened is that the next year in 2005, we had the, uh, the fall conferences in St. Louis, and this is when a whole bunch of the Aussies came. Anyway, it's two weeks after Katrina, and it was funny, and that's also when Don Mainzer became, became was the first event that he showed up after we hired him. He came after Jacobson, right. right? And he's the guy who did the rebrand REN. So what happened was is um, we thought we were going to lose a bunch of people because of Katrina, but we didn't. We only lost a few. And so one of those nights we have a roast for Cliff, and now we make Marty the MC, but we had a big surprise to Cliff they didn't know. So Joe Jones was up there. I was there. Um, uh, Gary Spinieri, and, and anyway, so here's what the Harry, uh, Harry. This is how we surprised Cliff. We reached out behind the scenes to Cliff's entire family, his, his mother, his father, his brothers, the whole deal. And we, of course, he didn't know anything about it, and they were going to be part of the roast. So what happens is we go through the traditional roast. Marty, Marty introduces me. This is what Marty says. He says the next person I'm going to bring up to the stage has an uncanny ability to, at the most unopportune times, disclose the most embarrassing thing about you that you told him, you know? <laughs> and boy, it was just great. So anyway, I said a couple deals. So anyway, 
Then and Billy Lakin did. Oh, oh Billy Lakin oh did this God. famous thing dressed as Tinkerbell, which was just hysterical. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and the roast was fantastic. Anyway, just towards the end. Chris, but everyone was. But this was no one said anything mean. This was like the Marty thing, you know. Like yeah. no one really well, we said some funny stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so, what happened, so what happened is, so now Cliff, uh, Marty got a couple zingers in on him. Marty got a couple zingers. So now Cliff basically comes up, he does his thing, and then what happens is we bring his whole family in. And he's just stunned. And then his brother Arnold and his brother Stu gave and just talked about the history room. It was great. Then we took a family photo. It was fantastic. Right. It was really good. Yeah, there's one other thing I want to I, I want to talk about, just as, you know, when it was lonely to talk, you know. One of the most difficult decisions I just thought about this uh, was when I was president of RIA, we had an event scheduled in Canada when SARS broke out. Mm. And I, I remember it was a very difficult decision that I made to cancel that event. I mean, oh, was, that's right. Do you remember? I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, it's just kind of like... Not only that, we canceled after 9-11, right. we canceled a major event. Right. The same thing because right. nobody would fly. Yeah. So we, yeah. those are yeah. tough. And, and then, then there was very specific language after that that went into these contracts that talked about terrorism that had to do with attrition clauses and contract systems. You know, the world never hit face that. Uh, yeah, fine, and like, we don't even think about stars anymore, but, yeah. you know, if I mention the bull, I think people will remember yeah, kind of like, kinda like, what, like, kinda like what we yeah. were dealing with. I mean, it was, it was a scary deal because that right. happened okay. right there. One more, I'm going into the... One round. more. This All right. One. The RIA rebranding is announced on IAQ Radio. Yeah, so this is going to be a good way to finish up here, and then... Uh, We'll do a part two with some stuff. Absolutely. So what happened, so ha and I'll be back at the consigliere for that. So what happened is, um, REA, after Major comes in and whatever, and they do some strategic planning and, and uh, develop a, you know, a, a mission, and that's how the, the model is developed as part of the rebrand. We make it better. Uh, we promise it's on our website. And what happened was is it was done as kind of a closed process, and it was intentionally done as a closed process. See, the ASCR rebrand was an open process because – once AIDS, the real AIDS came out, we couldn't call it association AIDS, and we went through an open process. But for a variety of reasons, the board handled it. And quite frankly, even I didn't know about it. People said later, they said, if you guys did something that Consigli didn't know about, boy, that it was like, this is like a CIA. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but towards the end, then, when they became the Consultancy Association, did all that, what happened was is um, they brought me into the process to help, and they wanted to know how we're going to introduce it to the industry for the first time and IQ Radio was chosen. And that's when Don Manger, when you guys interviewed him, and this has really started the beginning of a long relationship between REA, IQ Radio through me, and it, I thought it was a fact. It was like a 60 minutes interview. Don was prepared, he asked the questions, and that's how we released it. And then right after that, Patty Harmon, our communication director at the time, basically sent the news releases out to the industry and went out, and just the whole industry, and that was it. And so, that was it. You know, we'll we'll talk about the implications of that. Well, I will. Let me close with this for this point. What? Why did RIA do it? Well, what we realized is is we had done a bunch of surveys um, every five years of the planning, and we looked at the demographics of our membership. The carpet upholstery cleaner guys had left several years ago with the build up of connections in the ISARC, but the rugby's who are founding fathers were still there, and the demographics shortly a year or two before this rebrand was decided to change to RIA. We only had. 7% of our members that even talked about doing kind of cleaning in the context of textiles, and most of them were the rug, you know, the rug cleaning, the carpet cleaning. We were restoration. 93% were restoration, and that was the decision. Anyway, when we moved past this, 
go down, you know, the next show, we'll talk about the implications of that, what came out of it, and really um, move us now very close to where we're at, and then, you know, talk about where I think, and plus for me, we'd like to share it with you. Hopefully we can do that. I don't know if we can do it in two weeks. Nah, we summer. can do it. You know, whenever we can do it, we'll, we'll bring it back. Let's just percolate for a while. Okay. It is what it is. All so. right, I like that. John, let's go to the roundup, my friend. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out. Cut him out, ride him in. All right, all right. Today's interview, today's interview with the consigliere is over, but now returning in his role as the restoration industry watchdog, we still have Pete Consigli. We're going to wrap it up here today. We're going to take another five minutes of your time because I think this is great stuff. Pete, final words. Well, the um, I, I think I think you we, you probably ought to uh, follow follow this part here. I kind of want to think. I want to kind of share something now. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this a little yeah. bit. We're, 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 you know, we've talked a little bit about Pete's Mission Impossible here, all right? or the Mission Impossible vision, and a lot of select industry insiders, or you know, as a part of his efforts to facilitate collaboration between RIA and IICRC. Let's face it; they're the two big dogs to unify the industry for the greater good of all its stakeholders. It's been received with mixed reviews, and because of special interests and, and other things, there's a bit of a fear of change in Pete's opinion. So I think uh, what I'd like to do is, is let him expand on that a little bit, but I want to know, can you, can you hear the music, John? Last word. Well, Mr. Phelps, your mission involves and will require leadership, team building, overcoming challenges, persistence, integrity, open-mindedness, inclusiveness, tolerance, patience. Transparency. Treating people with dignity and respect, creative collaboration, and finally reverence and honor for our history and our traditions. I do have... I have a, a, a vision for where I'd like to see the industry go in the social sector, how I'd like to see it unify, how I'd like to see the groups collaborate. And, you know, before myself and Cliff and others of our generation retire, you know, um, how I'd like to see it pass it on to the next generation, the, the, the Gen Xers, the, the new young up-and-coming millennials. And uh, if the industry is willing to accept this mission, they're going to be rewarded, in my opinion, with 10 things and one really big one. And here they are. And This is the first time that I've actually ever shared this openly in public with the industry, and it's something that I, I, I asked Cliff to put in his blog. And I, later on throughout the year, I'll probably follow up with more thoughts um, in CNR Magazine and maybe some other, other venues. So here are the 10 bullet points. This is what I think the industry can have if they do these things, acting with those those core principles and values that I just talked about. I think they'll have a unified global voice so that they can deal with issues and threats affecting the trade, the profession, and the business. 
the cleaners and restorers. I think there'll be a place where in the one tenth, the industry and all its stakeholders can meet twice a year to focus on ed education and growth. I think they'll have a vehicle to differentiate and disseminate best practices from technical and business issues that affect the profession. I think they'll have a means to partner with academia, government, the scientific community to validate the profession and the business of cleaning, restoration, remediation, reconstruction, inspection, and maintenance for the research, the quality control, through marketplace surveys. These only have meaning if we're able to do it together. I think the industry will have uh, all in their own locations where practitioners of the trade can come to see and appreciate the industry's historical roots, understand where they came from by paying respect to the founding fathers and the trailblazers who toiled, toiled the fertile soil. I think the industry will have assurance and they will have confidence that they want to have with the customers of the products and service the industry provides that improves the quality of life and gives a peace of mind to those who require these products and services. In other words, the general public, the insurance industry, property managers, etc. That's what we want. We want to have assurance, we want confidence, and, and we want them to recognize us because we're credentialed for professional industry. We have research to validate the claims that we make. We can only do this together. We want to have companies in our industry, people who practice what we do, that they'll be able to compensate and hire people who can make a living from the occupation that they chose as their livelihood. Thus, they can have a good job, they can support their family, they can buy a house, they can plan for their kids' future, and in return, these people will give back to the industry, like the early pioneers and trailblazers did. I think the industry then will have a place where people will graduate from institutions of higher learning with a degree in the profession. And those people will be desired and they will be sought after. I think we need to have more support for Purdue. People, I'm not sure, understand the importance and the value that that plays as it starts to build momentum. I think the industry um, will have a place for those who pioneered a path to the profession. They're going to know when it's time to pass the baton of stewardship, that they can retire knowing that they gave everything they had to make it better. And I think in the very end, there will be a time and a place where the people who are our generation that are going to pass the baton, we took it from people like Marty and whatever, that we're going to know that the promise that we made to ourselves and we made to each other over the years, that we've fulfilled this legacy, that we've entrusted the next generation to take the industry to a place that we never thought possible. They can stand on our shoulders and see higher and further, just like we did for the ones that came before us. You know, that saying of standing on people's shoulders to see higher and further, that was Joe Stebrook's initial reasoning for summer camp that we had to learn from the old guys, we had to stand on their shoulders, see higher and farther, and pass it on to the next generation. It seems now the young guys then, 20 years later, are now the old guys. And uh, I guess in the final analysis, um, it seems to me that most of the industry organizations, if you go to their websites, you look at their missions, their goals, you look at everything that's up there, it seems that we have a lot more in common than we have differences. And it's not the organizations that have the issues. It's the people who... Uh, have influence in the organizations who, who uh, uh, you know, who serve the organizations, who manage the organizations. That's where the conflict. The conflict is always about the people, and then ultimately it spills over. The organizations are iconic; they're standalone. They represent the interest. Interest. It's when when the people, when the policies can be established, leadership can be had, interaction can take place. 
then I believe the industry can come together and we can grow. And I guess my question now is, is our industry in decline or are we maturing? And maybe that can be how we can segue to the, show, to the next part two of the show, whenever that is, kind of finish the points, bring it to the future, and then really me and Cliff can talk about, you know, we're, some of the things that we think that we can do in the future, where it can go, and kind of build off, off of this. But I only have uh, probably two things to add to what you said, Pete, and I never heard it before, and um, I, I, I think that there's one thing I would like to build on. Um, I, I think that we, uh, as business people, uh, as associations, I think we we need to consider uh, veterans that have protected us, uh, people that have been wounded. I, I think uh, as business owners, as organizations, uh, there's something that we can do for, you know, for those people that have uh, made the sacrifice. Uh, my final comment, again, goes back to the godfather. You know, we all need to remember that this is the business that we've chosen. This is the business that we've chosen. Hey, I've got one thing I'd like to add, and then I'm going to let Pete finish it up here. Um, I just have one thing to say. This was a lot of fun, but it was very serious, and there's a, a very important message behind the show that we've done. We do important work. But I just want to say, he who ignores history is doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. And that's why I think this part of the show is so important. We'll talk a little more about the future in part two. I want to let Pete have the final word since this is his show. Yeah. Well, Cliff, Joe, thanks a lot. You know, I, we've been using some quotes, and I, I guess I, I got two quotes. I did the Mark Twain quote. I want to close with two other quotes. One is Winston Churchill. And I heard this quote from Seabrook years ago. And uh, he talked about it in the context of uh, the global countries working together in the Building Science Committee. He said, during the darkest days of World War II, when the Americans were sitting on the sideline, and, you know, Britain was the last stand, you know, as the, as the invasion was going to Europe, Winston Churchill said, said, don't worry, he said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the possibilities. And what happens is, Possibility, exhausting possibility takes time. So I guess the message of that and why that's important is, is that maybe the industry's exhausted all the other possibilities and now it's time for the industry to get together and truly collaborate for the greater good. And the final quote, and I, and, and I think I actually want to defer to let Cliff get the final word before we close the show out of respect, is this. This quote is something that from Teddy Roosevelt, and I've had many, but, this, but Cliff gave this quote to me several, several months ago. And he said, Teddy Roosevelt basically said that every man or woman back in those days before suffrage, he says, has an obligation to give back to the industry from which they derive their livelihood. In fact, no man has a right to withhold from that from which, you know, they, their industry. So in essence, what he's saying is, that's all about the social sector. That's all about giving back. You don't just take. You have to give back. If, if everyone in society just takes, we have no society, they have to give back. If everyone in the association just takes and they don't give back, there'd be no industry. So I think that's a, maybe a good way to end the show and to let, and since Cliff was the one who brought it, let him have a last word before we close. I'm done. I'm done. You're done. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, the Consigliere, Pete Consigli, and the Global Restoration Watchdog, Pete Consigli, who came in for the uh, the roundup. 
Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith back in the studio. Great job. Of course, all of our growing group of loyal listeners. Downloads are through the roof. Great job, everybody. We'll be back next Friday at noon with uh, Dr. Glenn Morrison will be joining us. Looking forward to that show. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to all. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next week with the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 